Good morning. My name is Ellen. Today's reading comes from the Gospel of John, chapter 2, verses 1 to 12. Please follow along in your own Bibles or simply listen as the scriptures are read. Again, that's John, chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. Following the reading, I invite you to respond in worship with the singing of the doxology. Parents and children and parents and guardians of children in preschool and kindergarten, you're invited to escort your kids to the front of the room to join Kids Rock outside. As you are able, I invite you to stand for the reading of God's word. Hear the word of the Lord. The next day, there was a wedding celebration in the village of Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples were also invited to the celebration. The wine supply ran out during the festivities, so Jesus' mother told him, they have no more wine. Dear woman, that's not our problem, Jesus replied. My time has not yet come. But his mother told the servants, do whatever he tells you. Standing nearby were six stone water jars used for Jewish ceremonial washing. Each could hold 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus told the servants, fill the jars with water. When the jars have been filled, he said, now dip some out and take it to the master of ceremonies. So the servants followed his instructions. When the master of ceremonies tasted the water that was now wine, not knowing where it had come from, though, of course the servants knew, he called the bridegroom over. A host always serves the best wine first, he said. Then when everyone has had a lot to drink, he brings out the less expensive wine. But you have kept the best until now. This miraculous sign at Cana in Galilee was the first time Jesus revealed his glory, and his disciples believed in him. After the wedding, he went to Capernaum for a few days with his mother, his brothers, and his disciples. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Good morning. My name is Katie, and I'm on staff here at Haverhill Commons Church, and it is so good to be worshiping with all of you this morning. Um, I wasn't planning on doing this, but I do just want to say a quick thank you to Luke and Bea on behalf of the rest of the staff team. Um, they have meant so much to us and been such a blessing to us. Um, we'll have some more time next week to formally thank them. They don't know about this yet, but we are planning on doing that, so um, we'd love it if you could be here to help us thank them too. So before we get started, um, I'd like to take a moment to pause and let the Lord meet you in whatever you might be feeling this morning. After a moment of silence, I'll continue our time together with prayer. Dear Jesus, we come to you this morning with all kinds of thoughts and feelings and distractions. We come to you in the midst of our limits, and we pray that you would fill us with a knowledge and love of you, because you are worthy of all our praise. And it's in your name we pray. Amen. Okay, so about a month or so ago, I started rewatching Gilmore Girls from, from the beginning for probably about the fifth time. I have some friends who recently started watching it, um, and fall is Gilmore Girls season, so it felt appropriate. 
If you're not familiar with the show, um, it's a show about a girl and her mother, Rory and Lorelai Gilmore, and their unusually close mother-daughter relationship. Now, the fun thing about rewatching a show at different points throughout my life is not only the comfortable familiarity of it, but also that with every viewing, I find my opinions about certain characters changing. For instance, Paris Geller is the sharp, driven, brutally honest, and not very nice antagonist at the elite prep school that Rory transfers to during her sophomore year of high school. Eventually, though, Paris and Rory begin to develop a friendship and remain close throughout their college years and into young adulthood. Now, similar to Rory, I was not a big fan of Paris when I first began watching the show. And this time around, though, I have found myself feeling really drawn to the younger Paris. Despite all of her flaws and her tough exterior, I feel like I understand her a little bit better and can empathize with her in a way that I couldn't before. For instance, part of the reason that she's so mean to Rory from the beginning is because she sees her as a threat. Paris's entire family, generations of driven and highly successful Gellers, have all attended Harvard. And because of the pressure from her family to succeed and live up to the Geller name, Paris is determined to become editor of the school newspaper, graduate from Chilton as valedictorian, and go to Harvard, which also happens to be Rory's dream school. So when Rory shows up, just as smart and driven as Paris, with a desire to attend Harvard and become a journalist, Paris lashes out. But even as their friendship develops, the pressure on Paris to succeed remains. So when Paris gets her Harvard letter, and it's a rejection, not an acceptance, she's so distraught that she shows up at Chilton in shambles for a televised speech she's supposed to be giving. Needless to say, the speech does not go very well. And she then breaks down crying backstage with Rory, overwhelmed by the shame and humiliation of being the first Geller to not get into Harvard. Even in the midst of all her academic successes, her involvement with various school activities, and her work volunteering with as many different organizations as possible, this intelligent and ambitious young girl ends up feeling like a failure. Now, are there moments in your life when you have felt like a failure? or been overwhelmed with shame and humiliation. Maybe you felt like you didn't live up to the standards that were set for you, either standards that you set for yourself or those set for you by the people around you. Maybe you didn't get into your dream school. Or maybe you made a mistake at work that made you feel incompetent. Maybe you were rejected by a person or a group that you craved acceptance from. Maybe you continue to compare yourself to people around you or people you see online, and you feel like you can't measure up. Or maybe you had a secret that you felt like you couldn't share with anyone else because you were afraid of what they might think of you. Well, this week, as we continue our sermon series, Come, See, Stay, Following Jesus in the Gospel of John, we come to an important moment in John's Gospel a moment where a young, newly married couple face a situation that could leave them feeling like failures at the very beginning of their marriage. Well, several weeks ago, we walked together through the section of John's Gospel known as the prologue. And then Chrissy kicked us off on a new section of John 
that starts about midway through chapter 1 and goes all the way through chapter 12, often referred to as the Book of Signs. Because in this section, John highlights seven different signs or miracles that Jesus performs throughout his ministry. And today, we see the first of those signs. Last week, Matt talked about Jesus inviting some of the disciples to come and see. And we left off with Jesus saying to Nathaniel, Do you believe this just because I told you I had seen you under the fig tree? You will see greater things than this. And it's immediately after this that John shows us through the first of the seven signs that Jesus made good on that promise. Jesus calls them to come and see, and it doesn't take long for him to reveal to them who he is. Now, I think it's interesting to note that John is careful throughout the whole gospel not to call the signs miracles. Because for John, these aren't just random, miraculous events. John intentionally calls them signs. Because what do signs do? They point to something ahead and help orient you to where you're going. They convey information and direct you somewhere. They're symbols of Jesus' relationship to God. And Jesus himself speaks about the signs as works, because through them, he is doing the work of the Father. The signs say something about who Jesus is and where we should direct our attention. And every detail of those signs that John tells us about holds significance. Everything means something, and everything points to Jesus. So in the passage that Ellen read for us, we jump right into the middle of a wedding, John tells us, the next day there was a wedding celebration in the village of Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples were also invited to the celebration. Now, a couple of things I want to note here. One, this event probably didn't actually happen the very next day after Jesus called Simon Peter, Philip, and Nathaniel to follow him. Primarily because the Greek actually says on the third day, And John, using the third day, could have multiple meanings. Weddings during this time usually lasted multiple days, if not full weeks. So it's possible that the event unfolds, the event that unfolds actually happened on the third day of the wedding, which makes sense considering the event takes place towards the end of the celebration, which we'll talk about again a little bit later. It's also possible, especially considering John's desire to tell us more about what the life of Jesus means rather than specific facts about Jesus' life, that John uses the third day because he's pointing to something else that will happen on another third day, a day that holds great significance when the fullness of God's glory is revealed through Jesus Christ. And two, while Matthew, Mark, and Luke all give accounts of Jesus' birth, John doesn't. So this is the first time in John's gospel that we are introduced to Jesus' mother. She appears only one other time later on in this gospel, at the foot of the cross. And both times, John refers to her not by her name, but as Jesus' mother. For John, she bookends Jesus' ministry on earth, abiding with Jesus, witnessing his life and his death. And through abiding, she is known by her relationship with him. I think keeping both of these things in mind helps us approach our passage with a sense that this isn't just a story about a wedding or about wine or about how Jesus responds to his mother. Instead, there's something deeper that John is trying to communicate. 
because while the other gospel writers don't mention this event, it meant something to John. He saw a sign that defined precisely why Christ came into the world. But more about that later. So we're at a wedding, and at the time, Jewish weddings were huge celebrations. Typically, again, a wedding would last for seven full days, because a wedding was not just about the marriage of two individuals. It was about the marriage of two families. And those two families went out of their way and often deeply into debt to try and outdo the weddings of other families in their village. And they put on a full-blown party. And I think it's really exciting that this is Jesus' first stop on his journey with his disciples. They've just joined him and haven't really gotten to see what he's all about yet, and they stop at a wedding. They get to see Jesus feasting and laughing. They get to see him connecting with his family, dancing to whatever their version of the electric slide was. He wasn't somber and reserved. He partied for days. And such lavish week-long celebrations typically meant that extended family, neighbors, and friends were all assisting with the preparations. So weddings were extremely communal events that required the support of many people. And it was expected that all of the people involved in helping would be able to participate fully in the celebrations. Which meant the two families had to be sure to provide enough food and wine for seven days for basically an entire village and maybe more. So more often than not, the wedding gifts brought by friends of the families weren't blenders or fancy serving bowls or the most expensive knife set. The gifts were contributions of food and wine for the celebrations. So when Jesus' mother approaches him in verse 3 with the news that the wine has run out after just the first few days, this was no small issue. Having to tell their guests that they had run out of wine would have meant admitting to their entire community that they didn't have enough money to provide a normal wedding supply's worth of wine, and possibly even that they didn't have many friends, and therefore not as many contributors offering provisions for the feast. Now, Before we get to the rest of the passage, I want to be sure to mention that we're going to be talking about wine a lot this morning. And I'm sure many of us in this room have either had real struggles with alcohol or have dealt with the consequences of the abuse of alcohol. And I don't want to minimize that by making this into a question of endorsing or prohibiting the use of alcohol. Everyone's story is a little different, and we believe that caring for individual people is more important than drawing a line in the sand about whether or not it's okay to drink. So I won't be doing that this morning, but I did want to acknowledge that we know this can be a difficult subject for many people. At this time, in a culture where hospitality was seen almost as a sacred duty, wine was essential to the celebration. So running out of wine wouldn't have just been an unexpected complication. It would have been a significant stain on the host family's honor. And even worse, the young bride and groom would begin their marriage feeling full of shame and humiliation. But before they have to announce to their entire community that the wine has run out, Jesus' mother approaches him. And in this moment, I think she comes to him not because he's her son and he has to do what she says as his mother. I think she comes to him because he's her son and she knows him. At this point, she knows him more intimately than anyone else. 
Whether or not she's seen him perform miracles or not, she knows what God told her about who Jesus would be. She's pondered these things in her heart, and she knows his character. She knows that she can go to him and ask him to help. And yet all of this makes his response to her that much more surprising. He says, dear woman, that's not our problem. My time has not yet come. Well, I'm sure that wasn't quite the answer she was hoping for. And at first glance, his response even seems a little harsh. First of all, he calls her woman, not mom, not mother, not even her name. The word he uses, though, gnai in Greek, while uncommon, wasn't totally unheard of at the time. It wasn't usually a title that you would use to address your mother, but it was used as a title of value. So not the abrupt brush off that it sounds like to us, which I think is why our translation adds the dear to the beginning of it to help soften the blow of it for our ears today. It's the same word that Jesus uses later to address the woman at the well, the woman caught in adultery, and with Mary Magdalene at the tomb. It's also the same word he uses when he's on the cross. And he declares to his mother and John, the disciple whom he loves, that they will be a new kind of family. Still, it was a strange way to address someone he was so familiar with. But if we look at the rest of his response, it's possible that he uses this distant title, a respectful one, yes, but a distant one, as a way of distancing himself from her will for him and reminding her that his work is to do God's will because he is the one who was sent to reveal the fullness of God's glory here on earth. It almost seems like he's saying, it's not my problem. They really should have hired a better, better wedding planner. But really, I think he's saying something closer to, don't worry, leave things to me, and I will settle them in my own time and in my own way. So that's what she does. She leaves things to him and tells the servants, do whatever he tells you. Because she had faith that could trust, even when she didn't understand. She didn't know what Jesus was going to do, but she was sure that he would do something, even if she didn't know what that something was. Now, it's easy to read this part of the passage and see how it all plays out and think, if I just keep asking for what I want, God will do it. But I don't think that's what her persistence is saying. I think it's saying that she allowed her faith to deepen even in the midst of her uncertainty. We read next that standing nearby were six stone water jars used for Jewish ceremonial washing. Each could hold 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus told the servants, fill the jars with water. And when the jars had been filled, he said, now dip some out and take it to the master of ceremonies. So the servants followed his instructions. Six stone water jars used for Jewish ceremonial washing. The jars that Jesus directs them to are not jars typically used for serving wine. These jars, to be able to hold anywhere from 20 to 30 gallons, would have come to about waist height. And it would have taken a long time to fill six of them. And they were made of stone rather than clay or some other material because that would have ensured that they kept their contents clean and free of contamination. That way the water would remain pure for Jewish purification ceremonies 
like the ritual washing of hands before and after a meal. It was common for Jewish households, especially wealthy and religious ones, to have one of these jars, but six for one household would have been excessive. So the majority of them were probably borrowed for the wedding. And I imagine that the servants were pretty confused at these instructions. I mean, word was probably out among them that the wine was low. They're all whispering about what to do and what this could mean for the family. When Jesus tells them to fill the ceremonial, spiritually clean jars with water and serve that to the host, how does this fix the wine problem? Well, somewhere between filling the jars with water and serving it to the master of ceremonies, it did fix the wine problem. And it didn't just fix the problem as if Jesus waved a wand and now magically the party has wine again. Instead, it fixes it as it tells us something about who Jesus is and why he took on human form to live amongst us. Because not only did the water become wine, it became an abundance of the very best wine. Now, when we do the math, six stone water jars at 20 to 30 gallons each adds up to somewhere between 120 and 180 gallons of wine. Now, if you're like me and have a hard time conceptualizing lengths and weights and amounts, don't worry, I Googled it. Specifically, I Googled how many people would it take to drink 180 gallons. I didn't find the exact answer, but I did some calculations based on how much the average person drinks in a day, and it would take roughly 365 people each drinking half a gallon of wine to drink all the wine that Jesus had made. That's a lot of wine. And definitely way more wine than they needed to get through just a couple more days of celebration. And at this point in the festivities, when maybe some of the guests have left, or some guests have already had their fill of the choice wine, it would have been appropriate for Jesus to turn the water into cheap, uninteresting wine. But instead, Jesus turns it into such flavorful, high-quality wine that the master of ceremonies says to the groom in astonishment, a host always serves the best wine first. Then, when everyone has had a lot to drink, he brings out the less expensive wine. But you have kept the best until now. Now, at the very beginning of his ministry, Jesus didn't choose to make a big, grand public sign he steps in during a community gathering and helps a family save face, avoid shame, and start their wedding off on the right foot. He turns their day into something that was even more special than they could have imagined. And he does it without turning the spotlight on himself. He doesn't go to the master of ceremonies, the person in charge, and announce what he's done. He lets the bridegroom take the honor of serving the best wine. And it's his disciples and the servants who see his glory revealed. So what exactly does this tell us about who Jesus is? What information is this sign trying to give? I think it tells us that Jesus didn't come to leave us to live our lives full of shame. He came with a promise that there are better, more satisfying things to come for those who believe in him. He takes our old lives and transforms them into something new, something formed out of an overflow of grace. The wine was not just a replacement, it was a symbol of what's to come, a promise of the new life that Jesus offers to all who put their faith in him. 
Now, it's easy to think that God doesn't care about our normal, everyday problems, but here in this story, we see that he does care because it was in sympathy and kindness and an understanding for ordinary people that Jesus acted and began to reveal who he is. Jesus turning the water into wine, and not just some wine, but so much good wine, is a promise of abundance. It's a sign that he has come to bring grace upon grace, to take what was potentially disastrous and turn it into cause for celebration, to take shame and turn it into joy. With Jesus, we receive more grace than we need and a fuller grace than we could ever hope for. Even when you feel like your reputation is at stake or when you feel like you've messed everything up or you're afraid to let someone in because you're ashamed of the real you, just like he did with the shame that would have followed this young family if they'd run out of wine, Jesus takes it upon himself to remove our shame and he replaces it with overflowing grace in the moment when we least expect it. He sees our flaws and our failings, and rather than turning away and leaving us trapped by our choices or an event or a thing that happened to us, he meets us in those moments, the ordinary moments, like at a wedding or when we get a college decision letter. He meets us in our jobs and with our friends and our families, in the moments when we feel stuck and don't know where to turn, Jesus is there, waiting with his abundant grace to offer us the best wine and invite us into a new life, shaped and defined not by our shame, but by our relationship with him. Would you pray with me? Jesus, we are so grateful that you do not leave us to live in shame. You entered in and met with ordinary people and danced and celebrated with ordinary people. And you turned our shame into joy. Help us remember to follow the signs that point to you, even when we feel uncertainty or fear or doubt. And help us to abide in your overwhelming grace. It's in your name we pray. Amen.